Thanks, Emily, for leading us in worship. She has a beautiful voice, doesn't she? It's always good to hear her sing. Song is called Amen, which means we agree. Yes, we all agree. Now, we've been talking about the end times and what Jesus had to say about them, and that's sometimes a place where we don't agree, but it's okay. It's okay because there's going to come a point in history when we're all going to find out what the truth really is. The whole issue has been brought up, I think, by what we're in the middle of right now, COVID, and, uh, and people were asking. It seems to be difficult times, you know, people were wondering, you know, is the, is the, you know, the vaccine, is it the mark of the beast? There's just lots of questions that come up. That, and it's been a question that people have asked all through time. Is it the end? Is this the end? You know, Civil War, is this the end? You know, World War I, is this the end? World War II, is this the end? Gulf War, is this the end? So it's been a constant uh, topic that's come up. And uh, so we're talking about Jesus' comments on it, what he had to say about it. And, uh, and the reason, again, we're doing it is because of the fact that COVID has caused so much fear in death and sickness and closure and hospitals and so on. And every single day of every week, our homes have been pumped full of fear. We just can't help it, you know? Like, what's going to happen? What's the future going to look like? Now we're in this thing for 14 months. The point is that God is not the author of fear. And so what I want to get at specifically today is that we don't have to be afraid of the end. Now, lots of different things come up. Uh, again, the mark of the beast, we talked about this a couple weeks ago and last week as well, that it has been interpreted by lots of different people down through the years as being different things. And it happens to be, you know, just what happens to be going on, what has people's attention at the time. In the 30s, it was a social security number. You know, in the 50s, it was, you know, the AT&T, the, the area code. In the 70s, it was credit card numbers. In the 80s, it was barcodes, you know. 1990s, it was computers, WWW, you know, 666, stands for the beast. 2000s, locator chips and pets and phones. And then, of course, in 2020 and 2000. 21, people have been asking the question, is the COVID vaccine, you know, is that the mark of the beast? No, it's not, okay? Affirmative answer to that. Now, there are some things that you need to be thinking about as you read these accounts of the end times and what Jesus has to say. You have to look at the context. Jesus is answering three questions that his disciples asked him, you know, like, when is the temple going to get destroyed? You know, what's going to be the sign of that? What's going to be the sign of the end? You have to look at the Old Testament prophets that are quoted and go back to the original quotes, you know, to see what they're trying to say. It uses apocalyptic language. You know, you read the book of Revelation especially, and it talks about, you know, whores riding on dragons, you know, and talks about Jesus as having seven horns and, and seven eyes, you know. And so you have to understand apocalyptic language. You have to understand, if you're especially the book of Revelation, you have to understand God's judgment on an evil empire and what he's doing there. And then understand, this is a cosmic battle that we're in. It's not like Star Wars, but we are in a cosmic battle between what God wants to do and what he is doing, what he's going to accomplish in all of history, and of course, what Satan would want to see happen. So that's kind of the overview there. Common experience that we have, uh, all find ourselves in right now with COVID, is waiting. Waiting in line. Waiting for stores to open. Waiting for businesses to open. Waiting, you know, for the kids to go back to school. All these things. Some of you have been waiting to see family overseas. Some of you have been waiting to appropriately celebrate the life of somebody that you love who has died. 
Some of you have been waiting to have the big celebration after you're married. Some of you, you know, are in the restaurant business or the entertainment business. And, and right now, like the, the finances are running slim in your home and you're waiting for things to be able to open up. Waiting is tough. Waiting is always tough. 2,000 years ago, John, the author of the book of Revelation, Jesus' youngest disciples, he chose to follow Jesus. He was just blown out of the water by who Jesus was. He, he loved him. He was devoted to Jesus. And he watched and he listened as Jesus taught and as crowds came and people were healed and Jesus did astounding things. But as he watched and listened, he also watched people begin to turn against him, especially in the last week of his life. Jesus prophesied two weeks before he died that he was going to get rejected and he was going to get spit on and tortured and then crucified. And it seemed totally unreal to John and to everybody else until all of a sudden it happened. The longest wait I'm guessing that John ever had was, you know, from the night that Jesus died, the afternoon that Jesus died on Friday until he walked out of the grave on Sunday because he had to ask himself the question, have I believed a myth? Have I followed somebody who's actually a fake? What's going on? And then the women came into the room where they were waiting behind locked doors and told them, we've seen Jesus. He's alive. And he was there when Jesus told them all that the temple was going to be torn down stone from stone. He was one of the ones that asked the question about what was, how this was going to happen, what the sign was be. He was there when Jesus said that his generation, the generation that he was a part of, was not going to pass away until all these things that he had been talking about was going to happen. He was the last disciple standing by far. He saw the whole thing. He was there when Jesus told them that it was going to be lethal to follow him. And then he watched as his closest friends and the other disciples, you know, got skinned alive and got ripped in half and speared and, and, and crucified upside down like Peter and his wife both did. And he watched as this monstrous empire, Rome, not only crushed Jerusalem and obliterated the temple, but consumed and obliterated everything that was normal in his life. Everything that he had considered normal from growing up, from being a Jewish boy, from going to the temple, from the sacrifices and, and the Torah and everything else had basically, had basically been obliterated by Rome. And it was no wonder that Daniel called the leader a monster. And he watched as this mess unfolded and he waited for Jesus to intervene. And I'm, I'm sure he wondered, is Jesus' kingdom going to prevail or not? Because it looks right now like Rome is winning. How long? How long am I going to have to wait? Waiting is already tough. What makes it more difficult is adversity and danger. Some of you may have had parents or grandparents that were part of Europe when Nazi Germany was, uh, was basically, you know, kind of running over the whole thing. And there's this horrible, brutal regime led by Hitler, and it was crushing everything. It was annihilating. It had people in concentration camps where they were basically had systemically being annihilated. Imagine you're in that mess, and you're waiting. You're wondering what's going to happen. Evil seems to be in total control, and you're wondering, you know, if you're going to experience anything that looks like normal again, if you ever taste freedom again, or if the whole world, whole world's going to be speaking Germany. And you're wondering if the people who are responsible for the slaughter of your family and the loss in the world are ever going to get held accountable for what they've done. But we wait too, don't we? Even though we don't see the full effect of evil, some of you 
may not be acquainted with the why of evil. And I just want to talk about that a little bit because, you see, God created everything good. God created everything perfect. God created everything perfect and whole. We were made in his image, and we were placed in a garden. Now, some of you might be saying, yeah, 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 you know, I've heard that story, you know, and my English teacher in university told me it was just a myth, you know, it's two naked people in a garden with talking snake and so on. And, you, you know, you may be thinking, I don't think I can believe in that. Well, I want to tell you, I don't necessarily believe in it because the Bible says it, although I believe what the Bible has to say, but I believe in it because Jesus you know, claimed that it was true. And, you know, when somebody can predict their own death and resurrection and pull it off, I think you need to believe what they say. And, of course, that's who Jesus is. Now, this couple was given a dangerous gift, and it really does make sense of the problem that we face, and it's free will. See, God knew that love involves a choice. If people are forced to love, then it's really not love. Love is a choice. And so they had the choice whether or not they would love and respect the one who had made them. It had to be tested. And it was. And the question that God perhaps silently asked was, will you trust me? Will you trust me? But as you all know, there was another voice in the garden where they lived. Jesus called him the evil one. And the lie that he whispered to Eve and to Adam was basically this. Do you really believe that God loves you? Or is he messing with you? Is he trying to keep you from something that you would really enjoy? Is he trying to keep you from being great like he is? And of course, they believe the lie. And that very day that that happened, the intimacy with God was broken. And their distrust, in their distrust, they invited the evil one who deceived them into the garden. And eventually the whole planet rebelled. And everything grew increasingly harder. Everything grew more difficult. And everything has been affected by this thing that we call sin. Now, in some ways, I think that COVID is a great image for sin, you know. In December, November, December 2019, it got released into our world. And at first we thought, yeah, 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 well, it's over there someplace, you know, and hope everything goes well with them. But then it came over here. You know how it got transmitted? Well, the same way as sin, through humans. And we found out over time that it's so contagious, extremely contagious, so potentially dead, deadly, that our whole world has reacted. And I'm telling you, it has shut everything down. As you know, hospitals started filling up. People started dying. Businesses shut down. Then travel. And then restaurants. And then entertainment. And then schools and shopping. And people were told in big signs, stay home. Just stay home. And that's where we are. We're 14 months in, and we're still home. Everything in our world has been touched by it. And this is just a tiny virus. This is just a tiny virus. In this sense, sin, like COVID, ex except that everyone is affected by it and doesn't affect our health, it affects our soul, it affects our spirit, our motives, and our parenting, but they are similar, okay, in some respects. Sin, though, is spiritually lethal. It's not just physically lethal. Imagine a disease that causes people to think pretty much 24-7, 365 about themselves and put themselves first. And sin kills and twists all the good things that God has brought into this world and given to us as gifts. So if you look at sin, what it basically does, you remember the, remember the thing from... Um, uh, the Grinch, how the Grinch stole Christmas, how the heart kept shrinking, you know. Well, that's kind of what has happened through sin. Sin is a disease of the soul. And sin 
uglifies. Now, I don't know if uglifies is a word. I know that, you know, we have things that beautify us. You know, we put cream on our faces. Well, I don't actually, but, you know, some of you, you put cream on your face and you put things on you that hopefully will beautify you. Well, sin uglifies everything that it touches. It contaminates and kills everything that it touches. And that's what you need to understand. See, in our world system, we don't talk about it like that. You know, sin is sometimes marketed as fun, but it's not fun. It may be fun for a while, but ultimately it destroys everything that it touches. And the brokenness and the sadness that sin creates in our lives and in our relational world has done immense damage. It's done immense damage. Every pain that you've ever felt, every sense of insecurity that you've ever felt, every time that you've ever felt unloved, it comes from sin. And the only way to stop it was by Jesus giving his life. And that's what he did. That's what he did. So here's the question I want you to seriously think about this morning. Have you had enough? Like, have you had enough? Have you cried enough tears over, you know, broken relationships and over, you know, the hurt that you felt? Have you had enough regrets? Have you felt enough shame? Shame is an awful feeling. Have you felt enough of it? Have you watched enough relationships die? Have you felt enough anger over the selfishness and the greed that seems to run our world and how you give people a little bit of power and it goes to their head they begin to stomp on other people? Most recent stats show that there are 1.2 million children in our world who are being sex trafficked. And if you, without trying to, you know, being indecent about that. These are children who are basically either ripped off the street or sold by their parents into a life that is just unbelievably horrid, where they're, they're raped multiple times a day, and this happens pretty much for the next number of years of their life until they're too old, and then they basically get thrown away. Horrible existence. Are you sick of that? How many of you would like to see God put a hold on that and stop that in the tracks and heal the children who have been broken by that? Every year in our world, about a trillion dollars gets spent on basically, you know, on drugs, addiction of some kind. Some of you probably know somebody and love somebody who's addicted. And that doesn't even include addiction to pornography. Have you had enough of it? Are you sick of addiction? Are you ready to see it end? Are you ready to see people get healed and made whole and the whole mess stop? I'm guessing that probably just about everybody who's listening to this is sick of hatred and sick of war and sick of the stockpiles of weapons in the United States and Russia and and North Korea and India and and Britain. Do you realize that, you know, if these weapons, if, if the money that had been used to purchase and make these weapons was used, you know, for people, it would basically house, clothe, and feed everybody in our world who doesn't have enough. And you probably have enough left over to buy them each a cell phone. Are you sick of the ads that basically tell you that if you just have something that's bigger and something that's better and something with more horsepower, something that's faster or more expensive, that it will make you a happy person, only to find out that it's a ripoff. Yeah, you're happier for a few, for a few minutes, a few weeks, a few months, but then it's all gone. How many of you are sick of the greed that seems to run everything where people are based their worth on how much they own and, and, how much, and how much they can buy? See, this is a system of evil, and I'm telling you, if you're sick of it, if you're sick of it, 
then you ought to be glad that Jesus is planning to put an end of it. If you're sick of being afraid, if you're sick of being disgusted, if you're sick of being frustrated, if you're sick of traffic and pollution and noise, Jesus plans to heal that. Jesus plans to heal our world. If you love music, you know, if you've ever been in a concert that lifts your heart and lifts your soul into places that you know, thrill you, that you remember it for months, well, then you're going to love what Jesus is up to. If you love love and hope and kindness and compassion, and if you hate deceit and betrayal and bragging, then you're going to be thrilled with what God has next because he's going to put an end to that stuff. Put an end to meaninglessness. Put an end to anxiety. Put an end to boredom and racism. Now, what I want to describe next is hard to do without getting kind of sappy and weird, but I'm going to try, okay, on this. See, John saw our ultimate future. And like us, he saw everything that was gone wrong. And he had answered the question, have you had enough? The problem is he'd followed Jesus, but it looked like the whole thing had stalled out. And so, you know, the question, is this the end, you know, of COVID and trafficking and sadness and pride and corruption and so on? The question, the answer to that question is, I hope so. But the problem is, again, he was stuck. Now, Jesus had given him this vision of the churches, and you read about them in Revelation chapter, uh, chapter 1 to 3, and, and it talks there about these churches and so on. But what you find out is every one of these churches is struggling. In fact, you know, the angel, you know, Jesus says about the last one, the church of Laodicea, he says, I'm sick of you. Like, you're lukewarm. I'd just like to spit you out. So it was a good message in the sense that he could see that God was at work and so on. And so he, he gets this vision of heaven, and it starts in Revelation chapter 4. And so this is an astounding vision. He talks about a rainbow over the whole thing, which, of course, symbolizes, you know, the promise that God had made that he was going to heal everything, the promise that he had made to, to uh, Noah that he was going to, you know. And there's this breathtaking view of God's creation. And in this vision, you know, it shows the terror and the awe of all of these angels that are there worshiping God. It has the 12 thrones for the apostles and the founders of Israel. In other words, God was saying, you know, I'm going to keep the foundation. The foundation will always be there. You're going to have one of these thrones, John. Then he goes on to talk about, you know, and later on you'll see this about heaven in terms of kind of the gold and jewels and so on. Now, you know, we think, you know, well, you know, eat your heart out, Bill Gates. You know, I got a house made of jewels and gold. You know, you don't. Well, that's really not the point. The point of this isn't that we're you know, going to live in a house that's made of gold and you know, has you know, a big pearl for a gate and so on in the city and so on. The point is that what we sell our souls here for is what they use for building materials up there. John is basically saying as he reports this, yeah, you know, I mean, it's a little bit like going to Home Depot you know, to buy some drywall and, to, and some studs, okay? That's what it's like. Now, what's so important to understand about this vision of heaven, as John gives it here, is that it's not somewhere off in the sky, you know, far off in the Milky Way, you know, beyond the North Star and so on. Heaven, for John, is the current reality. It's like God opens his eyes and he can suddenly see beyond what is just normally there. And he was on this big rock out in the middle of the Mediterranean called, the, or the Caspian Sea, called Patmos, Okay. So what he sees is he sees that, you know, God is meshing these two, that God is bringing heaven here, and he's going to change everything that we see. 
And John is caught up in that reality. And suddenly he begins to see things as they really are. That God is at work in all the things that seem to him to be so grim and so awful. After the vision of heaven, there's this very emotional scene. Let me read it, okay? And this described kind of an unusual language, so just hang on there. Then I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. What they would do in that culture is they'd have a scroll and then they would dip some wax or drip some wax on it and they would have a seal that would stamp it, which meant that, you know, if you opened that, you weren't supposed to open it, you could be in big trouble, okay? Then I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who's worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Let me try to explain this as best I can. John has been living alone, okay, through one of the darkest periods of history, okay, certainly Christian history. And he knows what Jesus said. I mean, he was there when Jesus taught, you know, that God's kingdom would come and that it would be like a batch of dough with a little bit of yeast in it. It would just keep on expanding and expanding and expanding. And it would be like a tree, a giant tree that grows up and, you know, and covers all the earth and all these birds nest in it and everything like that. Like he knew that. He'd been there. And he knows that, you know, Jesus, you know, is, is when he rose from the dead, when he walked out of the grave, that the devil was down for the count. So he knows, ultimately, in his head, anyways, that God is going to win. But John has out-survived most of his friends, most of his companions, Peter, James, Andrew, Thomas, you know, and Matthew, all of them. He's watched them all get slaughtered. Now think about that. He's all alone. He's the one that heard Jesus. He's the last eyewitness, okay, of Jesus. And now he's on this island. He can't do anything. And what he has in his, what he has in his, his mind is just what has happened to all these people that he knows. In any great story, there's kind of a plot line, okay, that goes on. And you know, like if you watch the movie Jaws, you know, there's the hero and he shows up, you know, there and, and so on. But then, you know, there's the shark who's the anti-hero, you know. He's dum, 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 some girl's water skiing and he takes her down and so on. So anyways, the hero heads out to take down the shark. And so he's out in the boat, you know, and they see this big mouth come up out of the water. He says, we're going to need a bigger boat, and so on. So what you find out is he's in that boat, the shark's after him, and he goes down, you know, and like it looks like it's the end for everybody. The shark's going to win and keep eating people, okay? So the hero's in trouble. And to some extent, this is also the story of Jesus, and this is the story of his disciples. It's, you know, you find out God created everything perfect at the very beginning, and then they fall, and they get into trouble, and it looks like, you know, things are going to work out because of Noah, and then it gets bad again, you know, his son catches him naked in his tent, you know, and, and then it looks like it's going to get better, you know, Moses is going to bring them out, and they're going to create a nation, and it looks like they're going to go in, and they conquer the land, and then they start worshiping the gods there, and then David comes up, you know, he's the hero, and he he leads them out and so on. And then you watch as things begin to go down from him to the point where they're carried off into, you know, carried off into, um, uh, carried off into Babylon. And then, you know, the, the uh, Cyrus sends them back and they come back and it looks like, okay, we're going to go back. We're going to be back in our country. We're going to build a temple and guy gave us money to build it and so on. It looks like it's going to go up and up and up. And then, you know, the thing actually happens where God sends his son, the Messiah comes and they kill him and nail him to a cross. So it has the same kind of thing. So at this point, Jesus is in the grave. Okay. 
And then when he rises again, he rises in power and glory. But it continues on from there. When you look at the plot line in terms of, you know, what John has experienced, you know, Jesus rises from the dead, okay, and then he says to the disciples, okay, like this is in your hands, okay, I'll see you later, I'm, I'm going to come back someday, and it's, and it's theirs, the mission is theirs. So first the temple goes down, they watch this whole thing get torn apart. This is what John has seen. John watches Jerusalem get torn apart and invaded, and it's no longer even Jerusalem. He watches all of his friends, the disciples, get taken apart one by one. They all get killed. He gets news one by one that all of them have died. Then there's Paul. Paul's this bright, shining light, and he comes along. You know, first he hates the church and hates Christians, and then he gives his life to Jesus Christ, and he becomes this force for good and for starting churches. Then he gets thrown in prison, and he gets beheaded by the monster, by Nero. And then he sees Christians who are defecting. Paul, you know, writes this letter, and and he says, you know, Demas has forsaken me. This this is like a guy who had been one of his right-hand people, and, and he says, he took off. He found a better deal someplace else. There's churches where Christians are fighting. You find this all through Paul's letters, and it continued on. They're fighting with each other. And John's hope has pretty much gotten, you know, down to here that anything different is going to happen. And then the scroll, okay, and they can't open the scroll. Now, <clears throat> let, me, let me tell you what the scroll represented. It represented the fact that, you know, this is, this is going to be the end. This is what's going to happen in the end. Here's my point. You know, John's vision, the scroll represents the darkest time in history. You know, the story of what's actually going to happen, how Jesus is going to redeem this. And it answers the question, is the beast going to win or is Jesus going to win? Will there be any justice? Will this monstrous empire be held to accountability for what they've done? Or can they just flip off Jesus and kill all of his followers and get away with it? The scroll gives the answer, and, the, and, they, and John is told, no one can open the scroll. And it's like this dam in John's heart breaks, you know. It, it, it has to do with how much he misses Jesus. It has to do, you know, with the sadness of seeing all of his closest friends killed off. It's the price that he's paid personally, where he's had to give up marriage and give up having kids, you know. It's the parent success of Rome and the torture. He's watched, you know, children and, and adults get wrapped in animal skins and sent off into the arena full of wild animals and get torn apart. It's the sadness of nearing the end of his life and not seeing what was going on and seeing the mission accomplished. It's the people who have loved Jesus and then turned their back on him. It's, you know, the fighting that's gone on. It's the egos of people, you know, that seem to be destroying churches. And this is weighing on John's heart. And he's the only one left. And then there's this astounding moment. And then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed, and he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw the lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. And the lamb had seven horns, seven eyes. Don't get put off by that. Just talking about had perfect power, complete power, and perfect insight and perfect vision, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the world. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, and each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, music. You are worthy 
to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Wow. For John, it's like the clouds part. It's like the sun finally breaks through into all the gloom and the darkness that he's been a part of. And there's Jesus. He's missed Jesus. He hasn't seen him. And the, the apocalyptic language, the Lion of Judah shows up, you know. you know. Lions are the king of all creatures. They're powerful. They can take down just about anything. Get enough of them, they can even take down an elephant. Nobody messes with a king, with a lion, right? And yet, John sees a lamb. Lambs are small and they're helpless and cute and you want to you know, pick them up in your arms. You want to help them out you know, and kiss them on the cheek and so on. Carry them around. This lamb is bloody. This lamb has been slain. This has been a sacrifice. You take a helpless lamb and you cut its throat and there's all this blood and gore. But it represents Jesus. It represents exactly what he saw happen to Jesus on that day that he was arrested and then he was beaten half to death and nailed to a cross. And it's the Son of Man. It's the King of this kingdom who stepped out of heaven in all of its splendor and laid down his life so that their people could be saved and changed and redeemed and forgiven. And John was there. John knew the lion and the lamb. He'd watched as Jesus, who had loved him and taught him and helped him, they watched as the whole thing happened, as he was humiliated, as he was nailed to a cross as a public failure. He was in the room behind the locked doors and when the women came and said, we saw Jesus, he's alive. And now Jesus, the lamb, the one he loved, the one he honored, the one he believed in, is honored in all of heaven because he's worthy. See, John knew that Jesus was God. He knew that. He said that at the very beginning of his gospel, that he was there at the beginning of all things, that he was the creator of all things. All things were created through him. But now he saw Jesus at a place of honor, at a level of splendor and greatness that's just indescribable. He tries to describe it. Notice the use of the number seven. And I mentioned that. That's, that's used in Hebrew literature as a sign of completeness. Jesus, the lamb, has complete power, complete insight. He sees everything that goes on. And John and all the others say, heaven and earth may pass away, but my words will never pass away. That's what Jesus said to them, and it's true. What he said is true. What I've said, you know, according to Jesus, what I've said is going to happen. It will happen. It will take place. The mission will get accomplished. God wins, not Satan. John then describes how all of heaven honors the one that he watched get dishonored and humiliated and slaughtered. And here's what we're likely to miss, you know. This is all on a cosmic scale that is totally beyond us, you know. To think of the immensity of creation even you know, and understand that Jesus you know, made the whole thing, it was all made through him, it messes with our minds. For example, you know, our highways, most of our highways, you know, have a speed limit of 100, and, you know, 100 kilometers per hour. So we sometimes take advantage of that just a little bit, you know, 120, 130, and so on. Well, the speed of light, you know, you look at, the, you look at how, how big the universe is. The speed of light is 108 million kilometers per hour, okay? 108 million kilometers per hour. The known universe for example, is 93 billion light years across. 
And that's, we just think we're cool because we know that we can see it. And we, don't have no, we have no idea what lies beyond that. And Jesus, the one through it was all made, he came into here into our history at a specific point in time as a man, and he gave his life on a cross, and his blood dripped into the dirt. And all of heaven, all of heaven knows what he did as an act of humility and love and grace. And all of heaven falls at his feet. And John sees this. There's the, these angelic beings that are there. And, and John says, you know, there's just millions of them, okay? And so, you know, if we, like if you and I saw an angel, like one angel, medium-sized angel, you know, we would typically fall on our face. We would think that it's God. And all these millions of angels are on their faces before Jesus, saying he's the one that deserves the honor, the honor because he is so worthy. They get it. They understand And now John, who knew that, he sees it. And he understands what the end is going to be like. John hears all of heaven saying that the Lamb is worthy to open the account of how things are going to end. That Rome will not be in charge. And that there will never be a powerful nation that will be in charge of the world and end things. It won't be Russia or China or the United States or any country. No matter how monstrous or powerful or rich or noble they are. Because the Lamb holds all the power. All the power. The Lamb, Jesus, sees everything. He understands everything. He can reveal everything. He is the one who can now tell us exactly what's going to happen. And it will happen. The Lamb who deserves all the respect and honor. And, you know, not just some of it. The Lamb, Jesus, the one who's loved and admired by all of heaven, executed as a failure, failure by us, is now the one who controls the entire universe and will decide what the end is going to look like. And he controls my future, and he controls yours. My future is in his hands, and he loves me. And your future is in his hands, and he loves you too. And then John sees, you know, the whole thing completed. And it's not just, you know, all of heaven that honors and sings this new song to him, you know. It's everything, all of creation, and imagine, you know, John, who wondered if Jesus' movement would ever make it. He, he sees God's presence filled with people, you know, from every, every single people group, every single language, you know, every single nationality on this planet. And they're on their faces before him. And their eyes are stained with tears, you know, gratitude, gratitude pouring from their lives for this one who gave their lives for him. Remember, Jesus had said to them, he said, I want you to go to all nations and make disciples. John hadn't seen that yet, not from Patmos, but in this vision, he sees the mission is accomplished. And that's not all their music. (laughs) I love music. You ever been to a concert where you're sitting there in the concert and you're so overwhelmed when the music starts, you know, that you you just feel like your heart's going to come out of your chest. You want to shout, you want to cry, you want to dance. I'd like to dance, except I can't do that. You're just so overwhelmed by the music. And when you're there, it's like you can't get enough, like you can't absorb enough of the music because it's so incredibly moving and beautiful and you're, you're astounded by the, you know, the instruments and, and the talent and so on. And with your friends, you can't stop talking about this concert that you've been to, even though most of them wish that you would. I've always been moved by John's vision of the angels here and what he says. And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. And they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice, they said, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power 
and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures representing all of the living creatures of creation said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. This is an indescribable scene. And if all the angels are saying it, and all the creatures on the planet who've seen God in his glory and seen Jesus in his glory are saying it, it must be true. And this is Jesus. This is the one that I love. This is the one who told me to love as I would want to be loved. He's the one who promised that he was going to come back and he was going to rescue us and he was going to forgive us and that he was going to save us and, and make a place for us and bring peace to our hearts. And he's going to rule the earth and rule everything else. He's the one that said, come to me, all of you who are burdened down and weary, and I will give you rest. He's the one that said to the woman who was caught in the act of adultery, he says, I don't condemn you. All of the people who condemned you have left. He's the, per, he's the one who cleansed lepers. He's the one who reached into our lives and into our world and touched us and made us whole. And it says that he deserves everything, all the power, all the power, power over darkness, and death, and the devil, and future, and the past, over every leader, over every continent, over every force of nature. He holds all the power. Holds all the wisdom, all the wisdom of eternity past and present, wisdom for every choice that we'll ever have to make. He offers that wisdom to you and me. He will help us to know what we ought to do. All the wealth, every single thing that could ever be produced, you know, the tangible and intangible, he holds all the wealth and he can meet our needs. He holds all the strength. You ever face something in your life? You ever face a mountain and you're thinking to, your, you're thinking to yourself, I can't handle it, I can't possibly do that. It can't possibly happen. He holds all the strength. He holds all the honor. He holds all the credit for every good thing, for every truth that he told us, for every act of compassion and every act of freedom and generosity that he has inspired then and down through history. And he gets all the glory and the praise. He gets all the awards. All the award ceremonies go to him that have ever been given on this planet. All the glory that have been given to people who've built great businesses and made billions of dollars. All belongs to him. All the power, all the wisdom, all the wealth, all the strength, all the honor, and all the glory and praise. You have to ask the question, if every knee in heaven of every splendid being who's ever existed, every being in the earth, under the earth, if it bows to Jesus, you have to ask the question, what's wrong with our knees? I want you to just let that sink in for a little bit, okay? We have leaders that we admire a lot, you know? Jeff Bezos recently announced that he's going to be stepping down in July, you know, from giving hands-on leadership, you know, to Amazon. You know, Amazon is amazing, you know, and then, of course, there's Elon Musk. I mean, gee, you know, Tesla, they're great cars and stuff. Really great entrepreneurs. They've made a pile of money. And there's brilliant people like Albert Einstein. I mean, how do you compare your brain to his, okay? 
And then there are the people who inspire us and, and lead us in that way, like Martin Luther King Jr., Mother Teresa. I mean, you look at what they've done, and you just can't help but think to yourself, man, oh. I've had a number of leaders recently that I had huge admiration for, you know. And I tried to be like them and tried to get close to them if I possibly could and tried to read all their stuff, follow their advice, you know, tried to imitate them. And then they went down. I want you to think about a leader who will never disappoint you. A leader who is whole and healthy in spirit and soul and mind. A leader who has all the power and all the strength and get a leader who leads with humility and honor and honors people and respects them. Well, that's what Jesus is like. See, on our planet, if you get close enough to any leader for any period of time, close enough to smell their breath, you know, or see how they handle their lives or look at how they treat other people or look at how they use their money, you know, and how they handle their fears and, and their failures, you realize that there is not a leader on this planet that is worthy of anything close to the respect and the honor of Jesus Christ. In our culture, you'll find out that even a little bit of praise and honor you know, that people get on this planet almost always goes to their heads, where they begin to, you know, I don't have time for you. You're the little people. I don't need to bother listening to you. you know, I only listen to important people. You know? But Jesus, God in flesh, the lion and the lamb, the one before whom all heaven falls on their knees, the bright and morning star, the one with trillions of angels, magnificent beings who all fall on their face before him, the one who didn't stay far away so we wouldn't contaminate us, but came close to us and touched us and touched our diseased skin and touched our diseased lives to make us whole. He stays close. He's worthy. People who had lived scandalous lives, done awful things with their lives, horrible things, they wanted to be close to him because, you see, when they were close to him, they didn't feel contempt. They felt love, and they felt forgiveness and grace because he showed mercy. He showed kindness. He said that he'd come to seek the, and save the lost, and he was perfect and whole and wise and good. There was nothing he wouldn't do to save people and nothing he didn't do to save us. And that's why I say when it comes to the end and Jesus wrapping it all up, is this the end? <sighs> I hope so. I've had enough. I can't wait to see him. You know, I can't wait for him to make things whole. I can't wait for him to, you know, wipe the tears from my eyes. I can't wait for him to, to open the scroll and make it clear how every single piece of history fits together somehow. Even those you know, straying pieces of my own life. I can't wait for him to put an end to evil. I can't wait for him to invade the, you know, the, the death camps and the refugee camps. I can't wait for him to put an end to sick kids' hospital because it's not needed anymore. I can't wait for him to enter the basements where kids who have been trafficked in sex are held and heal their lives and set them free. I love nature. I can't wait to see the pollution gone. I can't wait for the beauty of creation to be healed and restored. If you love Jesus. See, if, if you're amazed and thrilled that he stepped out of splendor, out of the splendor of heaven, that he thought of you when everybody else thinks of themselves, why wouldn't you want him to receive the glory and the honor that he's going to get when all of the earth and all of heaven falls down before him? He's been sneered at. 
guy who was the, you know, the editor, the religion editor for the, for the Toronto Star, you know, Tom Harper said, I don't, think he ever, I don't think he ever even existed. John Lennon said that the Beatles were more popular than Jesus. Atheists, you know, curl their lips and say the name of Jesus with contempt as if he's some loser. Our world, you know, has declared that the standards that he has set for our sexual behavior, you know, and whether or not we judge and how we love are ridiculous, that nobody can follow them and nobody should. On a regular basis, people who hit their thumb with a hammer, one of the first things that comes out of their mouth is a word of contempt for Jesus. Jesus Christ is what they say. Why wouldn't we want Jesus to receive the honor that he deserves from everyone? Why wouldn't we want people to understand why flawed and screwed up people like us adore him and feel so unworthy of him and so unworthy of what he's done? And so the question is, is he worthy? I mean, you know, is he worthy? Is he worthy of your praise? Is he worthy of the very best from your life? Or do you just want information about him because it makes you look smart, makes you feel better than other people? Or is it in your heart that you proclaim with all of creation, with all the angels, with all the living beings and all the people from every nation and tribe and and tongue, he is worthy. He's worthy of the praise. He's worthy of the glory. He's worthy of the power and the strength. And he's worthy of the best for my life. As for me, if I can do anything with my life, if I can do anything worthwhile with the time that has been given to me, it's to let the world know that the end of all things, when creation speaks his name with with reverence, is worth waiting for. It's worth waiting for. Because he's so worthy. Is he worthy? He's worthy. He's worthy of everything that you can give from your life. Let's pray. Lord, this vision that you gave John was all by himself stuck on that piece of rock out in the middle of the Caspian Sea. It's so amazing and so so breathtaking. And we don't get it all because of the language that's used and because of the distance, time. But we do understand, Lord Jesus, that you are worthy. You're worthy of our praise. You're worthy of the best from our lives. You're worthy of our worship. And so we worship you. Amen.